As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. When I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Hey y'all, thanks for listening to Killer Queens. Or KQ if you're nasty. Welcome to the show where two 90s loving country chicks gab about true crime and tell each other to talk to the hand because the face ain't listening. I'm Torella. And I'm Tori. And we're sisters who have always loved true crime and decided to turn that obsession into a show with a light take on the topic. Kind of like diet true crime, it's all the flavor and fewer calories. Mm. Now with our show, you'll get true crime, 90s nostalgia, and a few four-letter words sprinkled in. Because I always say that Polly Pockets and true crime go together like peas and carrots. Be sure to check out our case submission form on our website at killerqueenspodcast.com and follow us on social media and YouTube. Now grab your Surge, your 3D Cool Ranch Doritos, and your kitten surprise, and let's get into the episode. This episode contains discussion of death and injury from trampling, fire, and smoke inhalation. Listener discretion is advised. On the evening of February 20th, 2003, hundreds of people had filled the station nightclub in Warwick, Rhode Island. They were all there for a concert headlined by Great White, a rock band that formed in the late 70s and has been together ever since, even though some members have changed over the years. Before the band was even able to finish their first song, though, a fire ignited that quickly spread throughout the venue. A hundred people lost their lives that night and 230 more were injured. 132 people escaped without any physical injuries, but the trauma from the night remains with them. Hey, you guys, welcome to Killer Queens. If you've never been here before, we want to give you just a little information about how the show is set up and what it's meant to accomplish. If you have been here before, welcome back. You can just use that handy skip ahead feature here if you want to. We want to give a message to friends and family of the victims. We know that there may be someone involved in the case who might listen one day, and we want you to know that our intention is to only bring awareness to this case. And while we do use personal stories in some instances and our own humor in order to tell the story in a way that listeners can relate, we have the utmost respect for victims and their families. We created Killer Queens to be a place where we can have open discussions about cases just like you would with friends. We are not investigators. We use information that is available to the public, such as documentaries, case files, and media coverage. Using this information, we intend to tell the story of what happened in each case that we cover. Now, will you agree with our interpretations or conclusions of each case? Well, heck no. Mm-mm. We each approach cases from different perspectives, life experiences, and beliefs that we already have in place. And sometimes these differences are slight, yet they can be wide enough to cause divide and upset some of those listening. We do our best to present the facts as we find them in our research, but we do bring our own perspectives to the case. We understand that you will too. 
We want you to know that this is a safe space to discuss differences in opinions in a civilized manner. Our style may not be your personal preference, and if that's the case, we know you'll be able to find one of the many other shows out there to tell the story the way you want to hear it. We can be grown-ups about it if you can. Now, if we are your cup of tea and you want even more KQ, you can join our Patreon and get access to our entire catalog of episodes ad-free and access to bonus episodes too. And I'll give you just a little hint if you're an ad skipper, um, but you still want the deals that we have from our sponsors each week, you can scroll down to the show notes and see what coupons we have available for you right down there. But you didn't hear it from us. Mm -mm, mm -mm, That's a pro tip, but I'll deny ever sharing it. Right. So all that being said, let's get into the story. And we want to give a hey girl thanks to Mark for writing this case for us. And uh, Jesse Israel for requesting it. Yes, thank you guys so much. I had never heard of this. Had neither. Until we started uh, looking into it for this episode. So I am... I'm a newbie to this one, but it is wild. It is. It's incredibly interesting how everything happened. And I don't know. I mean, we'll obviously get into it, but... Yeah. It's kind of one of those like perfect storms and in the worst way possible where like every single check and balance that should have been in place was just blown through, overlooked, cut corners, this like every single person who should have done a thing said, I'm not going to do it the way it's supposed to be done. And all of those things added up to this. Mm -hmm. And... The audacity. Oh, the audacity. Yeah. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So um, one thing we like to do around here is a window open scale because, um, you know, there are cases that make you so angry that you got to throw a bunch of stuff out the window, right? Sometimes it's a few things. Sometimes it's your own self. Sometimes yes. it's all of your belongings. They go and you got to start over. Sometimes... You need a wrecking ball to come in and just wipe out everything because you're just that mad. Yeah, because the the opening your window is just not going to be enough. You need a hole in the wall. The whole wall needs to be gone. Mm -hmm. Um, I think today is a wrecking ball kind of situation. Oh, yeah. Everything's gone. Yep, absolutely. Everything's gone. Yeah. Well, let us get started. Um, so our episode today, like Tori said, takes us to Warwick, Rhode Island. I'm going to be honest. I looked up how to say Warwick because I'm like, there's no doubt. There's no doubt in my mind that we're going to pronounce it wrong, even though it looks fairly easy to pronounce. And I got about 11 million different ways to pronounce it. So I was like, I'm just going to go with Warwick. I don't, (laughs) I don't know. So yeah. Um, also disclaimer no um new england accents were harmed in the making of this video i don't know about that yeah i've been practicing a lot and this is one that i cannot master or grasp i can't i don't know it's 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 a toughie but i have decided that if i could choose my own accent other than country bumpkin which i've just been born with would be this like boston new england Warwick, mm-hmm. or Australian. Oh, okay, yeah. 
Them's my favies, I think. I also like a New Zealand accent. It's fun. Yeah. 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 Um, Okay. But I've only got one sentence in, so shut up. (laughs) (laughs) I wanted to say it. (laughs) Uh, So this is located in Kent County, uh, just south of Providence and about 60 or so miles from Boston, Massachusetts. Warwick has a reported population of just over 82,000, according to the 2022 census. And Warwick is home to Rhode Island's main airport, which serves as an overflow of sorts to the nearby Logan International in Boston. Warwick, like many cities and towns in New England, has its own claim to fame in the history books. If many, many green people from history times. <laughs> exactly. That's a little always sunny for you. Um, it's recognized as the location of the first violent act against the British crown in 1772. Way to go. <laughs> really sticking it to the crown there. America. The Gatsby Affair, as it's known, was an act by colonists against a British boat, the HMS Gatsby. The Gatsby was charged with patrolling and enforcing the navigation laws around the colonies. So basically, if anyone wanted to have commerce with colonies, they had a set of rules and regulations to follow, which the Gatsby oversaw. So one day, while cruising around in the water, the Gatsby ran aground and got stuck. Yikes. Uh, Too bad, so sad, Gatsby, because that's when a group of men on the shore decided they'd had enough. And they got their own boat, and they went out to this uh, vessel, which is just stuck AF. And they attacked, boarded, and then set the Gatsby on fire. And this was in response to the laws and taxes that were levied against the colonies and the Boston Massacre, which had occurred in 1770. So this was their, we're not gonna take it moment. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that song was actually written in 1772. I thought it was pretty old. Mm-hmm. That's awesome. Yeah, and um, Twisted Sister just remade it. With the I don't cars. think it. I don't think it was Twisted Sister. Isn't that Dee Snider, Twisted Sister? Is that who sings that song? I thought so. In my mind, it's always been that guy with the long blonde hair and the lipstick. I mean, his makeup is impeccable. Let's be clear. But I, I. I don't know why I'm thinking that's not who that is, but if you're right, I will give you a noogie. If I'm right, I would be very surprised because you know this stuff more than I do. In my mind, it's always been D. Snyder. This is not my area of expertise as far as like, there's a whole genre, if you will, um, of music that I'm like, no idea. Yeah, this is one of them. Um, But I do know for a fact, that that song was written in 1772 aboard the Gatsby because everybody started chanting it (laughs) and it just became a thing and guitars, electric guitars were just not invented yet. But somebody said one day, this is going to have a sick guitar riff. (laughs) They saw the vision Mm -hmm. and that's, that's amazing. Yep. So come back here for more history facts. (laughs) So this attack preceded the Boston Tea Party by a year and increased the tensions between the Crown and the colonists. Sure, sure it would. Yeah. Uh, which would eventually lead to the Revolutionary War. Warwick was home to several officers and generals throughout the Revolutionary and Civil Wars, including George S. Green, 
1823, Green graduated from West Point, second in his class at only 18 years old. Darn. Wow. Uh, he has served in the Army until 1836 when he left and started working as a civilian engineer. And then when the Civil War broke out, Green felt compelled to rejoin the Army at over 60 years old. He quickly rose through the ranks and was made a brigadier general. And Green is considered to be one of the heroes of the Battle of Gettysburg for his actions during the war. After the war, he returned to civilian life as an engineer until he died in 1899. Warwick's history stretches throughout the founding of America, including being the home to Nathaniel Green, which is George's cousin, who served as George Washington's second in command. This is a very successful family, I would say. I mean, these are like people that are going down in history like even more than Rudolph the Red and his reindeer. That's crazy because he's he's pretty known. Like George Washington. (laughs) Oh, man. Throughout the years, a few NFL, MLB, and NHL, including Predators coach Josh Hines, did not know that was the Predators coach. Never heard of her. I couldn't. Was there somebody named Tutu that used to be on the Preds team? And everybody loved him. Mm -hmm. And then that's that is the extent of my knowledge on the Predators. Also, yeah. I do know that one time I went to, well, I've been to a couple of Preds games, but apparently I'm the Polly. This means that I am the bad luck charm, and every time I go, they lose. Every so, time I've been, they've lost, too. You're the Polly, too, then. Who's the one guy that everybody, like, uh, it's not Renegade. <gasps> oh, yes, yes, yes. Um, Crap, what is it? Something like that. Yeah, it's pin something. Because my old boss had a dog that they named. Wait, hang on. It's like, it's right on the tip of my brain and I can't think of it. It's, um, no, oh, fuck, I can't. Pekka Rene. Yes. Yep. Fred's is our, you know, Nashville team and like that's what we know about him. So anyway, and Fish. Josh Hines is from there. Again, whoever that guy is. Uh, and a couple of actors and actresses have lived there as well. Most notably would probably be James Woods, who attended high school and grew up in Warwick. I loved his work in Hercules. I'll tell you what. I know. And like now that I know that, I'm like, oh, I can kind of, you can hear it a little bit. Like, yeah, it's not, it's not as pronounced as, yeah, but you can hear it a little bit. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. When I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun... 
Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. So in Warwick, the station, which is where we're going to focus the rest of our time, this was a 4,400-square-foot nightclub that would host concerts periodically, mostly heavy metal bands. It was not a place where you would find bands at the peak of their popularity. It, I mean, it's small. So they did consistently have shows where bands would come and play, but it's usually kind of like after the height of, you know, their heyday or whatever. Um, but, or maybe before. Or maybe before, yeah. So um, the people in West Warwick loved it. It was like their neighborhood spot. You know, there were plenty of people that were like regulars there. It had that like local dive bar feel. And it was like, one of the survivors described it as kind of like a cheers environment where like you walk in, you kind of know everybody, you go there on a regular basis, you get to know the people that work there and like all that kind of stuff. Um, but people really had a good time there. And, uh, the building that became the station was built in 1946. Originally it was a gin mill and throughout the years, it was also used as different restaurants and shops, but eventually it was converted into a nightclub. In March of 2000, brothers Jeff and Michael Derderian purchased the station. (laughs) Yeah, this is the part where you boo them. I have so many things to say about these shithead brothers. Two thumbs way down. If I had four thumbs, I'd do it. Yep. All my thumbs all the way down. Uh, So Michael was an entrepreneur who had dabbled in various things throughout the years. Jeff went to Rhode Island College and had studied broadcast journalism. And he was the news director of the college radio station where he worked with Michael Gonsalves. I'm not sure I'd say that, Uh, who would later become a well-known radio DJ on the area's local rock station. So after school, Jeff worked as a reporter and he's been described as an aggressive reporter. So, you know, that guy that's like, is following somebody down the street and is like, do you have anything to say? Did you do it? Did you do it? Did you want to say something? You're hearing me? You're hearing me? You want to say anything? Don't you want to, don't you want to clear your name? So he's that kind of guy. Like he will not take no for an answer. It doesn't bother him one bit to bother people. Um, That's him. That gives me so much anxiety to see people who are like that because I am very much not like that. And so I get like, what do you call it? Like, um, like I'm anxious and embarrassed by proxy or something. Like I'm like, I'm watching it and I'm like, oh God, I'm cringing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So that's who he was um you know in some situations people liked it you know if he's talking to like a bad guy um people are like yeah ask him a bunch of questions but you know if you're talking to somebody who has just suffered a tragedy or you know like back off dude after several years in the journalism game jeff began to worry that it would become more difficult to make ends meet so that's when he and michael bought the station So in the late 70s in Los Angeles, now we're going to talk about the band, Jack Russell met guitarist Mark Kendall. I had never heard of these people until this case. Mark asked Jack to join his band and they played a few shows together. But then Jack Russell 
was arrested. Four, shooting a maid in a botched robbery attempt. Oops. (laughs) I was not expecting that even just a little bit. I wasn't either. He was sentenced to eight years in prison. And while he was in prison, Mark Kendall formed a new band with other people, and they called themselves Dante Fox. Where did that even come from? I know. It was Dante. They played a few shows, but their lead singer left to join another band. And Kendall heard that Russell had gotten out of prison after serving 18 months for shooting somebody during a robbery. And the band invited him to audition, because what could go wrong? So Russell was voted in by a two-to-one vote, and they started playing gigs. They recorded a few demos. They tried to get a record deal. Um, So during this process of performing, sending out the demos, trying to make it big, their manager was like, guys, change your name. I mean, this is very like the O'Neaters. I see what you're trying to do there, but let's fix it. Wonder what happened to the Omitters. Exactly. Mark Kendall had a signature look of sorts. He had long, naturally white blonde hair. On stage, he used a white Fender Strat Stratocaster guitar. I almost called it Strat Coaster. So, <laughs> um, wore a white jumpsuit and wore white shoes. A lot of white things there. A lot of white. It's a lot of color white. blocking at its finest. Yeah. So the story goes that after a show, the manager was outside a club, um, and he was like within earshot of some people. When this car drives by, Mark Kendall is riding in it. And so someone in the crowd said, there goes Great White. Apparently people were calling him Great White because of all the white shit that he wore. Um, and so the manager said, that's it. And so they called it, they changed the name of the band from Dante Fox to Great White. Well, there you go. There you go. Throughout the 80s, the band got signed by a record label and recorded um, and then released a few albums and EPs. And in the late 80s and early 90s, Great White reached the peak of their commercial success. They released the album Once Bitten, which featured the song Rock Me. They achieved success and got mainstream radio play. And the album was certified platinum. They toured with Guns N' Roses, Twisted Sister, White Snake. They also appeared in the European Monsters of Rock Tour in 1988 for several dates alongside Kiss, Iron Maiden, and Megadeth, to name a few. They followed Once Bitten Up with Twice Shy. The album featured their biggest hit, a cover of a UK song called Once Bitten, Twice Shy. Isn't it like... Doesn't that kind of suck for your biggest hit ever to be a cover song? But there are a lot of people who have found the same success. Natalie Imbruglia? Yeah, but it's kind of like, it's kind of like how Ruby Tuesday's claim to fame was a salad bar. (laughs) Have you had the water at Ruby Tuesday? Exactly. Like, it's like, but you're a restaurant, so don't you want like your actual dishes that you prepare to be the thing that people come for? But they came for the salad bar. Yeah. God, I miss that salad bar every day. I will say one thing that I think personally is even sadder than this is when you are possibly, let's say, a one-hit wonder, but everybody thinks you're somebody else. Oh, yeah. Like that song where it's like, I always feel like 
somebody's watching me and everybody's like yeah, oh i love I michael jackson and it's like no i always that's thought that was michael jackson some people think closing time is done by green day it's like no i know sister hazel it's hard to say what it is i see in you and people think that that is blues traveler yeah i i, I also love that song i mean I'm just saying, that makes me sad for them. Yeah, that's sad. This other album, The Twice Shy, would be certified double platinum, and Great White got a Grammy nomination for Best Hard Rock Performance. They went on a world tour to support the album. They performed with Bon Jovi, Rat, Warrant, and Alice Cooper. Now, that's a name that I know and love very much. John Vine Joni is... Amazing. Uh, amazing. I was thinking that too. John Vine Joni. Another It's Always Sunny <laughs> for you. I know. The band's popularity and success began to decline in the mid to late 90s, and they never achieved the same type of commercial or mainstream success as they had before. For the next few decades, members would leave and return to the band, kind of like a revolving door. I mean, it was always like in and out. In and out. That's inappropriate. Yeah, you can't say that twice, can you? Uh, This culminated with Jack Russell leaving the band, originally due to recovery from surgery for a perforated bowel in 2010. Throughout 2011, Russell was reportedly returning back to the band, but he never ended up doing that. Uh, The new target date for his return was February 2012, but he missed that return date too. Instead, he formed his own version of the band. But he called it Jack Russell's Great White. <laughs> Just can't. Like, if you, this happens often, right? Somebody, the band, some guy splits off or somebody splits off and then they're like, oh, we're going to come up with our own band. And that's fine. But you can't be like, if I started my own podcast just myself with somebody else or something, it was like, this one's going to be called Tori's Killer Queens. <laughs> Doesn't make any sense. Like, just join the band. I mean, obviously, there were some things happening and that they didn't want to be in the band together anymore. But yeah, you can't just be like, I mean, it's a bold move. Bold move, Cotton. See if it pays off. Um, the rest of the band was like, WTF, Jack Russell. Like, you cannot do that. Um, so, you know, they were like, dude, you don't have the legal right to use the band's name. You cannot do that. You can't just add another couple of words to it and say it's a different name. Uh, so they vowed to take any venue that promoted his new band to court. Eventually, the remaining members of the band and Jack Russell reached an agreement in which they would keep all the rights to the name, but they would lease out the name Great White to Jack Russell. So when he played shows with his version of the band, he could use the name Great White because he was leasing it. <laughs> it's a solution. It's a solution. So currently there is the band Great White and then Jack Russell's Great White. That's not at all confusing. I understand it. perfectly. Yeah. It's yeah. completely different bands. I mean, my gosh. Completely. One of them says Jack Russell's. I know. Oh my I know. God, Jack it's Russell. so easy. <laughs> How did I not? I never, I just, like, I just said Jack Russell's and then I was like, oh, the dog. Yeah. <laughs> but I don't like this Jack Russell. 
No, not at all. Mm-mm. Another. Mm-mm. Boo! Exactly. Boo was AS. I cannot believe that. It's like that time that I got those um, glue-on um, nails for my little toesies, and I called them tic-tac-toes because they look like tic-tacs, but it never occurred to me that it was tic-tac-toe. Yeah, you that you did not get that. I thought that's why you said it that way. Like, it would have been nice if somebody had made me aware of how hilarious that was in multiple different ways, but I didn't. Oh, oh, I was like, I was today years old when I realized that what I'm saying is, I don't know if clever is the, it, I think I'm giving myself too much credit on that one, but still. A little bit, yeah. <laughs> little I'm bit. so funny. I'm so funny. Also, um, my nose is very itchy today, so I'm so sorry. We've got a slight bit of a cold going around in this house, so. Yikes. I feel like I'm going to catch it just by all of the nose scratches that you're doing. And I will sue. Ew. Anyway, let's move on. So now we're going to talk about the night of the fire and the investigation. February 20th, 2003, there was a crowd growing inside the station in anticipation of Great White coming onto the stage. And it wasn't known to many at the time, but the brothers who owned the club had been in talks to sell it. And according to Michael, a deal was in place. The purchase and sale had been signed, and those plans quickly changed, though. Jeff Dadarian, I want to do it so bad, Dadarian. I can't do it. I'm so bad at a New England accent. Mm Mm-hmm. Because I want to say Dardarian in a New England accent, but I can't do it. I can't do it. I tried a lot last night. It's honestly embarrassing how much I practiced, and it's just not going anywhere. But Jeff Dardarian had recently taken a job closer to home in Providence at the local CBS affiliate. So the night of the fire, he actually he actually had a cameraman in the club because they were filming a segment on nightclub safety. Nightclub safety. Mm -hmm. And you want to know why? You want to know why? Because a week before, a nightclub in in Chicago Chicago had burned down. Okay? So that prompted him to be like, this is how it's done, guys. This is how it's done. Just keep that in mind. And, yeah, okay. Um, So, as the time for the band got closer and closer, the crowd grew. And the posted capacity for the club was 404 people, but the night of the fire, there were over 460 people inside. Mm-hmm. And I also read that they, the Derderian brothers, often um, advertised, like trying to get people to come play shows there, um, advertised the club as being like having a 550 person capacity or something like that. Just to so like, they're to liars is what they are. Mm-hmm. And apparently they could only have like, if they were going to have the 404, there was supposed to be a fire marshal present and all of the tables and chairs would have to be moved out of the way. But that wasn't done. There's still not room for the 404 in there. Yeah. And there's I no mean, fire marshal present. Right. It's like, and then they, they took the bare minimum that they had to do and they were like, piss it. We're going to go mm-hmm. even harder here. It's just ridiculous. And like, so like, this is what I try to tell my kids. Okay. There's a rule here and it's not to fuck your day up. It's not to ruin all your fun. It's not to just be like, ha ha. I get to tell you how many people and you don't get to do what you want to do. And I'm just like 
really trying to like, you know, burn your bucket or whatever. It's to keep you safe. It's to keep over or a hundred people from dying tragically in a fucking fire. There's a reason for it. There's a and reason that's not- that only a certain amount of people need to be in this establishment because if something goes wrong and you have all these teeny little hallways leading out to the doors, you got too many people. And it's not, this is not the only, now I'm sure there have been other cases of fires in a very public and uh, crowded place and things went, you know, I don't know, but the amount of people and the exits, that shit is still happening because Travis Scott just got in a lot of trouble. I don't know if he got in a lot of trouble. He should, um, or whoever put it together because that happened. People were trampled. It was outrageous. And, you know, yeah, so anyway, let's get back to, and, and I was going to say like this, them not, them going over capacity. It's awful. It's terrible. It contributed to what happened. Not the only thing that they did though. Mm-mm, no. Yeah. I wish. I wish that's the only thing they did. Right. So the band made their way to the stage and Jack Russell said a few words to try to pump the crowd up. And they started playing a song called Desert Moon. Never heard of her. Don't have any desire to hear it. Um, which was one of their hits from the early 90s. Um, and as the song started, they kicked it off. Tour manager Daniel Beakley set off pyrotechnics on the stage. And the pyrotechnics were gerbs. Gerbs, gerbs. What's a what does that mean? What means gerbs? A thick walled tube that shot out sparks from one end. A gerb, a gerb, a gerb is the word. I, 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 gerber babies. Like I don't. Okay. Anyway, just an interesting um, word to use, I guess. But yeah. so these were fifteen by. I'm gonna say fifteen by fifteen, but like fifteen, fifteen pyros, meaning that they would shoot out fifteen feet in the air for fifteen seconds. And there were two in the middle of the stage to shoot out vertically, and then one on the left and one on the right to shoot out at forty five degrees. So this is what we're looking at here. Yeah, do it feels good to do the thing. Yeah, yeah. it's like an air traffic controller or something. The crowd roared with excitement and anticipation as the sparks shot up and out while the band was kicking off the night, and that quickly faded, though. Some people close to the stage noticed that the sparks were kissing the material right above the stage, and that material was an acoustic foam. It was in two layers. The first was highly flammable urethane, and the second was less flammable polyurethane. The polyurethane is much more difficult to ignite, but once it starts to burn, it emits a thick black smoke along with carbon monoxide and hydrogen cyanide gas. OMG. It said that only two to three breaths are necessary to render someone unconscious, leaving them to suffocate in the smoke. Mm-hmm. And it apparently like completely strips the lining of your lungs from the inside Jeez. and renders your body incapable of receiving the oxygen that it needs to survive. Two to three breaths. You take two to three of those and you are done for. Oh my gosh. But let's cover the whole building in it. Right. And (laughs) maybe it's a really great product for soundproofing, but then you're like, bring in some fireworks. Shit. Let's see what, you know, like. See what happens. How many people did, how many people had to make those terrible choices? Because I know it's not, it wasn't just one guy. It was a lot of people, but it's like, 
I, oh, whatever. I suck. I'm appalled by this. So some of the people in the crowd could see what was happening before it became apparent to everyone. So they started to move away from the stage and towards the exit, but it didn't take long for the flames to appear. Someone from the club went towards the bar and asked for a fire extinguisher and they could not find one. The flames are growing bigger and bigger at this point. And some of the crowd thought this was part of the show until the band stopped playing and Jack Russell said into the microphone, wow, that's not good. How do you have no fire extinguishers in the whole place? Not one. I think that it's not a bad idea for every building to have a fire extinguisher because you just never know what could happen, especially one that allows pyrotechnics. Or like they have a bit, you know, a commercial kitchen and that like, I mean, I worked in a medical office and we had the um, fire department, fire marshal came twice a year to check that our fire extinguishers were in the places that they were supposed to be in and that they were in working condition and that they were like full and like all that kind of stuff. They came in twice a year, like clockwork every single time. And we had a relatively small office. You know, we had three patient rooms, a couple offices, you know, bathroom, whatever, lobby. And we had to have, there was a fire extinguisher in the lobby of the building outside. Then we had to have one in our reception area. And then we had to have one in the back as well. Well, it just makes good sense. And like, not only, let's say they didn't have a kitchen, but they've got a lot of electrical things Electrical mm-hmm. fires happen. Mm-hmm, 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 mm-hmm. And pyrotechnics. And that's what I'm saying. And this building is old. Like, <laughs> you know, I just, uh, I don't. And it's covered in a highly toxic flammable material. <laughs> like somebody I, called I, it, um, somebody called it like it becomes like a bomb. That's what this is covered in, but. Okay, no, no fire extinguishers in the whole place. Right. Hey, y'all. Did you know that we release an update all about us and what we're up to each week on our Patreon? It's called T to the fourth power Y, which is some time to talk to you, a nod to not another teen movie. Mm-hmm. And it's where we just gal pal with you about life, what we're watching, our love for Cracker Barrel Italian dressing. I mean, honestly, the sky's the limit. You never know what you're going to get, really. Mm -mm. If you want to catch an episode without being a patron, you are in luck. Just head over to killerqueens.link slash T-T-T-T-Y. Okay, time to talk to you. Four T's and a Y. And you'll get to hear a full episode for free. And you can get every single regular release episode ad-free for as little as $3 a month. That's less than half the price of the coffee I get at Starbucks. So, I know. That's crazy. I know. What a deal. Mm-hmm. And for $10 a month, you get all that plus our other two Patreon-exclusive shows, Murder Mixtapes, which is a full bonus case each week. Recent cases are Tara Grinstead, Hannah Cornelius, and New York Body Snatchers, just to name a few. And you also get our other Patreon-exclusive show, Doc Jams, which is where we cover true crime documentaries episode by episode. We've done Don't Fuck With Cats. We've done Crime Scene on Netflix. They have Cecil Hotel and Times Square Killer. We've done The Jinx. We've done so many more. So be sure to head to killerqueens.link slash T-T-T-T-Y to get your free episode and hundreds more episodes to download right now and binge when you become a member of our Patreon community. 
right, so let's talk about another fuck up. Um, the emergency exits. Door one was the front door that a lot of people, you know, that's where most of the patrons would have come in or all of them. That's where you buy your tickets, right? So when you stepped in the door, you would be in a small like corridor or hallway and to the left of the hallway was the main bar. In the main bar room, there was an exit. On the back side of the bar, there was a kitchen area and what's described as like a dart room. And there was an emergency exit in that room too. And off the back of the dart room was an area for storage and offices. And back at the main entrance, if you were to go to the right or to the end of the hallway, it opened up to a dance floor slash standing area with the stage being on the furthest wall. And there was a fourth exit right by the stage. So the flames are beginning to spread, right? The band made their way off the stage and out the exit close by. And it has been reported by survivors that when they approached the same exit to leave, a bouncer at the door turned them away and told them that it was for band members only club policy. Yeah. So, and they walk up, like one of them, one of the survivors, her name is Gina Russo. She was there with her boyfriend. She and her boyfriend walk up to this bouncer and they are screaming at him because the music is still going at this point. And they say, the club is on fire. This building is on fire. We have to get out of here. And he is like, absolutely, you cannot use this. This is for band only. Club policy can't do anything about it. Flip your ass around and find another way out. So they turned around and tried to go out the front door. And her boyfriend didn't make it out. Mm -hmm. I can understand that that could be a, a club policy in place. But when you have an emergency such as this one, I say we forego that rule because at this point, it's become ridiculous and arbitrary. It's stupid. And one of the emergency entrances was chained shut because they didn't want people sneaking into the show. Mm -hmm. It's an emergency exit. Why? You can't chain it shut, guys. Like Four emergency exits, and now we've got two gone for patrons. Just out of here. Mm -hmm. Um, And from... Everything that we've seen, this bouncer made it out mm-hmm. alive. And never faced any charges. His name is Scott Vieira. Mm-hmm. So while people are beginning to realize that danger is at hand, um, the fire is spreading fast. People are trying to file out, but they're only aware, many of them are only aware of the main entrance at the front. So they begin to push towards the door. But because of the small hallway or corridor, it creates a roadblock, right? Like everybody's bottlenecked into this one area. Mm-hmm. Plus and, that's where the ticket table is. So that's right. taking up space. You have to kind of like weave in and out of that. Well, and so the the main entrance has got two doors, but one of them is locked. So the, you can only go out this one door. Why are we, lo- uh, why are we locking that? Yeah. <sighs> so the whole time, the polyurethane foam has been burning and it's releasing the toxic smoke. And people who can't escape begin to collapse as the smoke fills the venue. And people who aren't able to move because of reasons, they're starting to get crushed in the hallways and the doorways. So they've either passed out or whatever, tripped, whatever is happening, and they're being crushed as people are trying to get out. Yeah. There's um, one documentary we watched on YouTube, um, and we we always link to our sources um, on our website, so you can go get that. But, um, it's just interviews with survivors about this night. And one of the guys that they interviewed, he said when he and his wife at the time started 
to try to make their way to the front door. Um, and of course, it's a mad dash. He said, he was like, I grabbed her hand and I told her, no matter what you do, you do not fall down. Like, you, if you fall down, you're done. Like, that's it. It's so scary. Well, yeah. And one of the other survivors, his name is Brandon. He was rushing to get out, understandably so. Of course he was. And he tripped over someone that he didn't, he said he didn't realize that she had perished, but he, he tripped over her. Then everybody's coming and everybody's tripping over him. So now we've got this like huge pileup of people. Yep. And because they don't, they're, yeah, they don't see the, they're just, yeah, everybody's tripping and falling. People are getting trampled. Like, Mm-hmm. So the band's lead guitarist, Ty Longley, he went back into the building after escaping, reportedly to retrieve his guitar, and he never made it back out. And it said that, I mean, he just, he didn't understand the yeah. magnitude of this fire. Yeah, so he, because like by, you know, it starts, you start seeing the ceiling catch fire. And at first it seems very small. And then it's like you blink and it's the whole ceiling. And then it's like you blink again and everything's coming down. Like the entire building was engulfed in flames within just a couple of minutes. Mm-hmm. The whole building. And it is burned to the foundation. There's nothing left of it when this fire is over. And I think just a lot of people, it happened so fast. And they just didn't, They, like you said, they didn't realize how serious this was. Mm-mm. I mean, to go back in for a guitar, I'm sure that if he had, if he had been given the choice, do you want to save your life or your guitar? He would have not gone back in, but he obviously didn't realize right, how quickly this was happening. Absolutely. Mike Gonsalves, again, not sure how to say his name, but um, he's the one who worked at the radio, college radio station with Jeff Dardarian. Um, he was working as the MC for the concert, and he never made it out as well. Within minutes, like we said, I mean, the entire building is up in flames and unsalvageable. And when the fire department initially arrived, some people said that they had an issue trying to get their hoses hooked up to the fire hydrants, which also delayed them getting the blaze put out. How? Like, now, the only thing that I can reckon for this situation, and I don't know, I mean, I'm not, I'm no fire, fire fighter, but... Um, I, in one of the documentaries, we find out that, I mean, this night's in February, it's in Rhode Island, it is freezing cold. I mean, mm-hmm. freezing cold. And there's snow everywhere. They just got hit by a blizzard. There's ice everywhere. I mean, yeah. is that a possibility? That's what why I they wondered get too. It? Yeah. Yeah. Because I don't, it's just something happened and they were not able to get the, like, like, Talking to or hearing some of the survivors talk about this, you know, they're like, if you do get out, a lot of people don't realize that they're burned as they're coming out and people are just shoving them into the snow to put them out or to to ease the pain of the burns once they realize that they've been burned. But there's so much snow that they're just like shoving them into the snow. Um and a Which, lot of them were like, at that point, there's no water on this fire still. There's nothing. Right. Thank God for the snow. Because I'm guessing that it, I'm hoping that it helped save some people, you know, mm-hmm. but it's, oh, it's crazy. Mm-hmm. You know, 100 people died either in the fire or from injuries sustained from the fire. 230 people sustained injuries from the fire. Many had burns caused by the acoustic foam melting and falling onto their skin, giving second and third degree burns. Mm-hmm. 
and 132 people escaped physical injury, but many suffered from PTSD for years following the accident. And the documentary that we watched, it wasn't, I don't, I don't exactly know when it was filmed, but the survivors that we hear from, they are still visibly shooken up and they're, I don't know if that is ever going to leave them. Absolutely not. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. When I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. With LinkedIn Jobs, we tap into a network of more than a billion professionals to help you find quality professionals quickly and easily for any role you need. Marketing wizards? Found them. Software engineers? Found. That project manager I could never seem to hire? And found. LinkedIn Jobs quickly matches your roles with candidates with the right skills and experience. In fact, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Post your first job for free and get started at linkedin.com slash spoken. That's linkedin.com slash spoken. Terms and conditions apply. One of the documentaries that I watched, um, it was another series of interviews with survivors. The, The one that we both watched, the survivors in that one, some of them were burned, um... They did not have visible injuries anymore, really. Um, They had healed up pretty well. I watched another one, and one of the survivors that they talked to, this poor, poor guy, I mean, he is, his entire body was burned. And he, you can see that. I mean, he has to wear glasses. One of his eyes was completely, like, burned and melted. I mean, there's nothing there. Um, he's lost most of all of his skin. He lost his hands. Um, it's, it's just horrific. And he said, you know, somebody like hooks up a, you know, you plug in a toaster and get it warmed up and you, that smell of heat or like when your heat comes on, you know, for the first time in the year or whatever, it kind of has that smell. He's like that. I mean, it freaks him out and uh, totally. And I mean, it's just, that completely changed, not only did it physically change his life, but even people who maybe did not sustain physical injuries, like you said, I mean, that memory, that fear is with them. Right. And I mean, one of the guys, I think his name was Joe or John. Maybe it was John. There was a Joe and a John. He had long a long ponytail and mm-hmm. I, I adored every everybody that I heard from in this documentary. But he talked about the, um, uh, like, I think he said, like, his mind has blocked out so much that he, I don't think, he said that he couldn't 
bear to remember, but he does remember a lot from that night. But he was like, I, the like the the details because some of them were talking about like I saw a woman running by and she's completely engulfed in flames, completely. Mm-hmm. Like it's just the things that they saw. It's horrific. It's absolutely horrific. So following the fire, the investigation began into the cause. And um, nobody, absolutely, this is great, guys. Nobody shifted blame on anybody else and everybody took responsibility. Yay! God, wow. Silver lining. Uh, Just kidding. Um, That actually did not happen. So investigators discovered quickly that the club was over capacity. And it goes without saying, but without the extra 60-ish people, a lot of people probably could have gotten out. I mean, the owners of the club said that they never, ever, ever gave the band permission to use pyrotechnics, and the band said that they were given permission to use them. Now, there was nothing in writing to say whether or not they could do it, but the band said that they were given verbal permission. So even if, let's say that they did have permission... The 1515 pyros that were used when the ceiling was only 11 to 12 feet high is not a good idea. Like, yeah. why would you why would you use pyrotechnics that are taller literally than the building? <laughs> shooting into, yeah, shooting into yeah. the ceiling. Because even if even if it didn't have that particular material on it, I mean, if you're for 15 seconds, basically blowtorching the ceiling, touching it with the fire, it's, can't, don't you expect that it might catch fire? I think so. I mean, makes sense to me. Yeah. And I did read that Michael Beakley was very, very detailed in his record keeping about shows that he set up and he had like a spreadsheet on his computer and noted, you know, that he got everything like in order, lined up and all the things. So he made a note when he talked to one of the brothers on the phone where he had gotten permission to do the pyrotechnics. And the investigator said that they did not believe that he had altered this in any way after the fire, that it appeared that he, he did make that note at the time. Um, so it just shows you another, like, again, though, we've got 11 to 12 foot ceilings, 15 foot pyro, and no, no fire extinguisher anywhere nearby. And he is not certified in pyrotechnics. And this is not a Bridgestone arena or, you know, large, large, large venue where a 15 foot thing doesn't even begin to come close to anything else. But um, it's just kind of another, it's another area where I feel like the brothers just are not taking any responsibility. So the building itself had fire alarms, but they didn't have a sprinkler system. And because of its age, it was built in 1946. And the way that it had been zoned, it was not required to have a sprinkler system and was in fact exempt from the regulation. So when it was rezoned to be a nightclub from a restaurant, its occupancy had changed. And the changes meant that a sprinkler system should have been installed. But after the change in zoning, there were fire inspections, but nobody doing the fire inspections noticed that it didn't have a sprinkler system and should have had one installed. But that's your job. Yeah, That's your job. Your job job is to notice if there's sprinklers 
Your job is to notice if the building is covered in highly flammable toxic material. Mm -hmm. And that's your job. I would also say it's your job to be like, where's your fire extinguisher? And then the next part of your job is, oh, you don't have that? Shut down until you get it. Call me when you get it. Call me when you grow up. Exactly. And they didn't do that. No, I I really feel like whoever did these inspections should have also faced charges. I agree 100%. Because what good is a fire alarm if you have no way to put out the fire that you're alarming people of? Right. And like uh, there were so many places in which like we said, checks and balances were just ignored. But at the end of the day, the fire marshal or whoever was doing this inspection gave them the all clear. Mm-hmm. Now, they still bear responsibility. But if we don't, if we don't have consequences for the people who were doing the inspections, for them, if they're not doing their job properly, look at what can happen. They could have shut this down. Mm-hmm. The show would have never happened. Right. And 100 more people would still be alive. But they didn't do that. And so, 132 people or however many it was that were injured, they would not mm-hmm. be faced with no these injuries that they've sustained. It's exactly. just... exactly And like... I mean, it's just like, you know, when we talk about like prosecutorial misconduct and stuff like that, they maybe, maybe the case will go back to trial if they get enough evidence and blah, blah, blah. But typically they face no criminal charges. Right. For the most part. So what is keeping them? There's no deterrent. They're just like, what? I mean, probably nothing's going to happen. I don't know. I just like, if there's absolutely no consequence, then what is going to, you're just relying on people to like really want to do their job well. Yeah. Not do the bare minimum or not cut corners. And and these are people that like work for the state. And mm-hmm. I mean, you know, what are the like running jokes about people working at the DMV and like, you know? Yeah. Yep. Exactly. So the night of the fire, the club should have had sprinklers, but it very obviously did not. And A National Institute of Standards and Technology investigation ran computer simulations and made a mock-up of the area and determined that a sprinkler system would have contained the fire long enough for everyone to escape. Even with the emergency exits being the way that they were. Right. That one change. Like, that would have cost them, I think, because of how old the building was, like 30-something thousand dollars. So they opted not to do it. Mm -hmm. Because the lives of you know, you're putting the lives of the 460 people in jeopardy. So the lives of 460 people was not worth $39,000 to the Durbarian brothers. Right. The investigation determined that the foam used for dampening the noise should not have been used to. Um, in fact, Jeff had also done a report on polyurethane foam. Listen to this. Jeff himself did a report when he worked for a Boston TV station. The report itself was a deadly house fire that had occurred due to a smoldering mattress. And in the report, it explicitly stated 
Another problem is what's inside the mattress, polyurethane foam. Fire safety experts call this stuff solid gasoline, and it can cause a smoldering mattress to burst into flames. So obviously, it goes without saying that one of the brothers, at least, knew how dangerous this stuff is. Okay, so Jeff, the journalist, sure, had done a report previously on the dangers of this particular product. He knew that a week before this fire, another fire had happened in a nightclub. He thought it a good idea to bring a camera crew in to show how it's done on nightclub safety. But after this happens, he's going to claim, I didn't know. I didn't know. I didn't know. I didn't know. And like one of the survivors, the guy that you're talking about with the really long hair, um, he said as soon as he walked into the club that night, he looked up and saw all the polyurethane on the all over the place. And he was like, I just saw a news report about that shit. And it's very dangerous. It's highly flammable. Mm-hmm. He said he clocked it as soon as he walked in. He had seen the thing on the news. <laughs> <sighs> what is the point? What was even the point of doing the news report? What was the point in having, like, it's just. Like, you cannot claim that you had no idea. I, I understand that, like, you know, you and I talked about this earlier. Like, I understand that, like, Maybe if you're the owner of something, but you don't work in it every single day or whatever, you just own the building and there's like a, you know, general manager or whatever that manages all the contracting and blah, 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 blah. Like maybe, maybe you aren't exactly familiar with everything that something is made out of or yeah, every all of the materials pr- that they and, use and stuff. Yeah, yeah, exactly. But this guy was, this guy was. He did a fucking news report on it. Mm-hmm. Okay, so let's get to the trials. Um, obviously, the community was shocked and stunned in the aftermath of this fire. Um, they wanted answers and they felt like somebody should pay. After the investigation, charges were brought against the owners of the club. So that's Jeff and Michael Derderian and Great White's tour manager, Daniel Beakley. Each man was charged with 200 counts of involuntary manslaughter. That's two per death. And that was because they were indicted under two separate crimes for each death. So one for criminal negligence, manslaughter, and then misdemeanor manslaughter. The brothers pleaded not guilty, but Daniel pleaded guilty. And he said that he, quote, wanted to bring peace and for it to be over with. He pleaded guilty to 100 counts of involuntary manslaughter. During his sentencing, the state prosecutor asked that Daniel be sentenced to 10 years in prison, which was the maximum allowed under his plea bargain. He said that the massive loss of life needed to have a penalty that sent a message. During his sentencing, Daniel made his first public statement since the fire three years prior. Quote, for three years, I've wanted to be able to speak to the people that were affected by this tragedy, but I know there's nothing that I can say or do that will undo what happened that night. Since the fire, I have wanted to tell the victims and their families how truly sorry I am for what happened that night and the part that I had in it. I never wanted anyone to be hurt in any way. I never imagined that anyone ever would be. I know how this tragedy has devastated me, but I can only begin to understand what the people who lost loved ones have endured. I don't know that I'll ever forgive myself for what happened that night, so I can't expect anybody else to. 
I can only pray that they understand that I would do anything to undo what happened that night and give them back their loved ones. I'm so sorry for what I have done, and I don't want to cause anyone any more pain. I will never forget that night, and I will never forget the people that were hurt by it. I am so sorry. And as he spoke, it was clear that Daniel had remorse and was still completely broken up by this tragedy. Uh, The judge sentenced Daniel Beakley to 15 years in prison. Four years to be served with 11 years suspended, plus three years of probation. He remarked that, quote, the greatest sentence that can be imposed on you has been imposed on you by yourself. Reactions in the crowd were mixed. Some thought that it was just while others thought he deserved more time. When it came time for Daniel to face the parole board in September of 2007, they actually received 20 letters. And I was surprised by this. I thought it was going to be 20 letters from family members who said, don't let him out. But they got 20 letters from family members in favor of his release. They felt like he should be released. Um, They said that they felt like he was much less guilty than like the brothers. Some people even called him a scapegoat. Um, And they also felt like he was the only person who ever took any responsibility, who seemed to actually genuinely have remorse. Mm -hmm. And they didn't feel like he would be a danger to society. They felt like he really did care and would never let anything like that happen again. Absolutely. Well, and I think, I mean, from where I'm sitting, it looks like the brothers are kind of like, well, if he wants to take responsibility, let him take it. You know, like, I'm not going to do it. But if he wants to, by all means, it's like, no, it's because he actually has a heart. Again, for this is all my opinion, but I just, I was very moved and touched by how much he seemed to care about what happened. And yeah, like he... He 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 absolutely made a horrible, deadly mistake. I mean, one hundred percent, yes. And and he it shouldn't was, be absolved from any no, accountability. But it was reckless. Um, but I feel like to plead guilty versus not guilty is putting is you know after the fact. Some would say too little, too late, but is putting at least the families of the people who were lost, the people who have been injured, everybody there that night that suffered, you know, PTSD and all those things. Like you said, he didn't want to cause them any more pain than they already had. You know, he could have fought it and maybe ended up with just probation, but he didn't want to put them through that. So he put their healing, I feel like, ahead of his own possible freedom. Right. It makes a statement. I mean, people appreciated it. Absolutely. And I have never been in a situation like the the victims' families and loved ones have been in, luckily. Um, and I hate that they're in that, have been in that situation. But I would think that even just a small acknowledge, acknowledgement of like, man, I really fucked up here and I own that. It goes, it go, has to go a long way or a little bit of a way. Like, come on. Yeah. yeah. And I mean, survivors have said so, you know, that, that meant a lot that, that really went a long way for us. And yeah, 
as of, so he ended up being granted parole. And as of 2013, he lives in Florida with his family. Um, so after Daniel's sentencing, the Durdurian brothers were scheduled to have separate trials. Leading up to their trials, they ended up deciding to change their pleas from not guilty to no contest. Of course. Uh, which would allow them to avoid trials. So Michael ended up receiving the same sentence as Daniel, 15 years in prison, serving four, 11 suspended, three years probation. Here's where your wrecking ball comes in. For driving pullover. We can't be responsible for what happens when you hear this. Absolutely Jeff, not, no. Jeff, the person who did a report on how dangerous this was, this material was, the person who scheduled a television crew to be there to highlight nightclub safety after he was aware that this had just happened the week before in another nightclub, the person who knew the most about how dangerous this situation was received 500 hours of community service. The end. 500 hours of community service. The judge said that the difference in the brothers' sentences reflected their involvement in the purchase and installation of the flammable sound-dampening foam installed above the stage. Now, I would argue that Jeff just probably didn't actually make the purchase because he had another job. Like, he was also, like, I don't know if this was Michael's, like, his main gig or whatever, but... Jeff was also a journalist, so he was doing other things, but he absolutely was part of the decision to not get the stuff that was flame retardant. It was his decision, too, to get the stuff that, again, he had just released a news report on right. that was so, so dangerous and flammable. And he, his words in the, in the report was they called this stuff liquid or solid gasoline. Mm-hmm. Gasoline is liquid. Solid I gasoline. Think so. Yeah. Like, I am, I know the kids don't say this anymore, shooketh. Uh-huh. Yeah. I'm shooketh. Like, I I just cannot. Um, the state attorney general objected vehemently to the sentences and said that both brothers deserve jail time. And Michael deserved to have more than Daniel had received. Um, Michael ended up even being granted early release in June of 2009 for good behavior. In the months leading up to the concert, the nightclub had been inspected twice by the fire marshal. The first in November of 2002, when the club was cited for nine minor violations, but they did not cite them for the highly flammable foam used for soundproofing which was completely against code. And again, it's their job to know that. They're the ones who enforce the code, so shouldn't you know the code? Right. Um, there was a follow-up inspection in December of 2002 to verify that the nine violations had been addressed. The phone was, again, not cited. And the inspector gave the venue the all okay. <laughs> Just cannot... You had two chances to be like, wrong, 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 You had two wrong, chances wrong, wrong. to do your only job. <laughs> yeah. And you blew him twice. Yeah. It's not like he's the fire marshal and the, you know, like, 
yeah, all these other things. And he's like, wait, I, I'm filling in for this guy here. And I don't know all the rules. Like, no, it's his job. Absolutely. 100%. And I think that there are a lot of people who are like, you did wrong and you did wrong and you did wrong and you did wrong. But this is one where I'm like, are you freaking kidding me? You went back m- one month apart and what, two months before this happened and you mm-hmm. didn't catch it. How? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I, just, guess I what? really feel like they should have brought charges against the fire marshal. Well. well, I feel like there are some jobs where you got to play it like Pokemon and you got to catch them all. All violations. Got to catch them. Yes. A hundred percent. I mean, there's, yeah, there's some jobs that you just like, you can't afford a mistake. You work at a restaurant you get somebody's order wrong. You make new order. That's not, that's not this. You are a fire marshal and you don't cite them for something highly flammable. And then they have a show come in because this is a, this is a music venue. A lot of musicians use pyrotechnics in their shows. And even so, even like you said, even if they didn't, we've got all kinds of electrical equipment here and the building is completely covered in this highly flammable, like you knew it was a gang's code. I just, I know. And let's not mention or not forget uh, the sprinklers and how there were a zero goose egg bupkis. Mm -hmm. And let's also not forget that um, we blocked off two of the emergency exits (laughs) and locked one of the doors, the front doors. And just most people didn't know that there was an exit out of the kitchen because why would they? They don't go in the kitchen. Like, (sighs) I know. So a memorial service was held after the fire and thousands of people attended to remember those who were lost. Five months after the fire, Great White started a benefit tour. Before each show, they said a prayer for the families and friends affected by the fire. They donated a portion of the proceeds to the Station Family Fund. Mm-hmm. And um, the Station Family Fund said, no, thank you. Gina Russo, whose boyfriend had perished in the fire, she was in an 11-week medically induced coma after the fire. Like she said, the last thing she remembers of the fire is trying to get out. Her boyfriend had been behind her. She turned around to look for him. She couldn't see him anymore. And there was just waves of people. She fell and hit the floor. And that's the last thing she remembers. And then she woke up 11 weeks later. Goodness gracious. And she had burns all over her body. So she said that, you know, Jack Russell never publicly apologized for any of it. He never said, I'm sorry. He never stood up and said anything. And then he started this benefit tour, which she knew was a publicity stunt. It was not actual remorse. Mm -hmm. So she was like, we don't want your money. We do not want your money. He also told all these people, this reminds me very much of Amber Heard, I have donated $7 million to this children's hospital and this fund or whatever. And then she's like, but I use donated and pledged synonymously um, because none of the money actually went there, but whatever. So he told all these outlets when he did interviews that like, you know, because the song they were playing when this happened was called Desert Moon. And he's like, we um, are never going to play that song again. You know, it's too triggering. We can't do it. It just reminds us of too many bad things. 
Um, we've never played it again since this one show and we'll just never be able to do it again because of, you know, how triggering it is or whatever. And then like a year later, they started playing it again. And when people asked him about it, he was like, well, it's not the song's fault. (sighs) Nobody asked you to not play it in the first place. That was something that you were going to do just out of the goodness of your own heart, because that could be like, you know, we said very triggering for people who survived the fire to hear that song, I would, I would think. And just maybe in a small way to honor the victims and um, and survivors. Yeah, like we're not going to some... like rock out to the song, which the last time we played it, a hundred people died in the pro- like, and because of a pledge that you yourself made. And then when people are like, um, "How come you're not doing that?" Then you get defensive. Well, <laughs> well, you want me to punish the song? song Do you want to punish it? the people who want to hear the song? Like, dude. Whatever, man. He's just the, he is the, what is it? Amoebas on fleas on rats. That's what he is. Lowest of the low. Too low for even the dogs to bite. This whole thing reminds me so much. I was telling Torella because she's never seen Jennifer's body and I don't know how and I also don't know why. But um, it reminds me of Low Shoulder from Jennifer's body if you've seen it where the very, very, very same thing essentially happens. And then they go on this tour and they write this song. What is it called? Or I don't know if they already had written it, but now they've dedicated the song to the victims and they're just trying to get famous off of this terrible tragedy. Right. Um, so the side of the fire was cleared and many families placed crosses and it served as a memorial for loved ones. And in May of 2003, non-denominational services started being held at the site for months. The site remains open to the public and memorial services are held each February 20th. In June of 2003, the Station Fire Memorial Foundation was founded with the purpose of fundraising and constructing a permanent memorial. In September of 2012, the owner of the land donated it to the foundation. And in April of 2016, construction started on the memorial. They had raised $1.65 million of their $2 million goal. And in May of 2017, the dedication of the Station Fire Memorial Park took place. As of September 2008, at least $115 million in settlement agreements had been paid out or offered to the victims or their families, including $25 million from the Sealed Air Corporation. That's the company that made the foam that was installed in the club. The state of Rhode Island and Warwick agreed to pay out $10 million. And in February of 2008, Providence Television Station WPRI-TV and their then-owners, LINTV, made an out-of-court settlement of $30 million as a result of a claim that their video journalist was said to be obstructing escape and not sufficiently helping people exit. American Foam Corporation, who sold the foam to the club, agreed to pay $6.3 million in settlements. What a horrific... Tragedy. All the way around. All the way around. Every single checkpoint of like, did you do this? Did you do this? Did you do this? Did you do this? Right. Nope. 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 Nah. No. Nah. Nah. That's a whole thing. That's like, it's paperwork. I'm going to have to fill out a thing. I'm going to have to do with him. I'm going to have to spend some money. I'm going to have to. I don't feel like it. Yeah. And look what happened. What could go wrong? 
But we want to know what you guys think. Who do you think is to blame? Do you think that the sentences and trials were, you know, was it just to serve? Like, what do you guys think? Um, Right. Do you like Great White as a man? Never heard of him. Yeah. That's, those are all great questions and I don't have anything else to add to it, honestly. Nope. Um, if you're listening, thanks for listening. If you're watching, you know, thanks for watching and uh, <laughs> we'll catch you on the next one. Bye. Bye. Hey guys. Um, it's, it's our favorite time of the episode. It is shout out time. And we would like to give a Hey Girl thanks to Charlotte Parrish, Allison N. Insel, Vicki Saddington, Lena or Lena Sassines, Lindsay Murley, Stephanie King, Sav Stamps, Stephanie Marie, Amber Barnes, Kim Langford, Brandy B., Jenna Johnson, Sydney Davis, Rachel Joyce, Ruby Johnson, Sarah Delacourt, Abby Boswell, Crystal Collins, Lisa Leone Keenley, or Kinley, excuse me, Elise McKamey, Lori Ann, Paulina Estevez, Anna Wilson, Amanda Garcia, Amy Villa, Brooke Hackett, Kylie Durham, Emmy Foster, Mary Halloran, Cassidy, Michaela Brown, Chloe Atkinson, Lauren Corba, Nisa Boyko, Leanna Blackwell, Abby Hammond, and Sherilyn. And I'm sorry I'm flying solo today, but, um, and also I'm sorry if I fucked your name up because you know I did. But thank you guys so much. We could not do this without you and we love you, love you, love you implicitly. Bye. We'd love to hear your thoughts on this case. Connect with us on Instagram or Facebook to continue the conversation. Thanks for listening and we will meet you back here next week. Bye. The theme song for the show is created and composed by Stephen Toby. You can find more of Stephen's work on SoundCloud. Our logo was created by Sloane Williams of Sophisticated Crayon. You can find more of her work on Etsy. Visit us at KillerQueensPodcast.com for merch and other info about the show. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com podcast. That's Indeed.com podcast. Terms and conditions apply.